Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club event. I'm Emily Chang. I'm the host of Bloomberg Technology and Studio 1.0, and it is my pleasure to introduce Mark Bergen and Shashir Marotra. Um, Mark is a tech journalist. He's the author of this new book, like, comment, subscribe. Inside YouTube's chaotic rise to world domination. He has covered Google for seven years, um, written for Bloomberg, Bloomberg Business Week, Recode, Ad Age. He's been my colleague for many, many years. He's a joy to work with. Um, and Shashir Marotra is the co founder and CEO of Coda. He was previously vice president of product and engineering at YouTube Video um, at Google, and he is also on the board of Spotify. Um, he's also been a guest on my show many times, um, so I'm excited to ask him a few different kinds of questions today. And I just want to encourage all of you to submit your questions. We're going to be taking questions at the end of this, and we definitely want to hear from you, so you can put those in through the chat on YouTube. Um, Mark, I want to start with you because um, it's been so uh, fun to want to watch you navigate the, the reporting and writing process for the last several years. And obviously, I'm so proud of you. Congratulations. Um, you. Given how busy your day job is, why did you want to write a book about YouTube? It's uh, a great question. I think the short answer is that no one had tried this before. Uh, and I think was sort of an injustice given how important YouTube is uh, and has been for in technology and reshaping media and culture and entertainment and, and politics. And the list goes on. Uh, someone described it to me as sort of like a sleeping giant in social media. Um, and it hasn't really been for a variety of reasons, hasn't been really given, uh, I think, due treatment. And uh, also it is, there's so many, both people at the company, but also the stars on the platform uh, are just have these amazing rich stories um, that was a joy to tell. And in many times um, really difficult to, to tell And YouTube has so many personalities. Uh, and so my, my hardest role was really just deciding like, who to keep in and, and who to uh, unfortunately leave out. You talked to 300 people or something like that. Talk to us a little bit about your reporting process, especially when it involves the company that you cover, which doesn't necessarily want you to be writing this book, um, you know, and, and maybe you can also share how much YouTube actually cooperated with you in the end. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't uh, it wasn't an outright rejection. I think um, I, I spoke of those 300 uh, plus people about it's like a dozen or so were uh, official conversations, like on the record conversations with, with current employees and, and up from, you know, talk to people in the marketing team, engineering product uh, and, and the number two, Neil, Neil Mohan, as well as uh, several of his direct reports. Uh, you know, I think the company understands that I was coming at a uh, at a critical lens, uh, but have covered them, I think, pretty fairly as a business journalist. Um, you know, my pitch to them was, you guys have seen things that no other platform has witnessed, uh, and you've dealt with complications, both in, in content moderation and then just a, as a business, right? Like the unique and interesting thing about YouTube is, unlike Facebook and and Twitter, it, it shares revenue with with now two million plus creators, and I think in early time even even more. And that is just probably like the world's most complex online economy, uh, which I was trying to, to capture and explain to readers. Uh, I think it was also I had the um, you know, complication of reporting most of this book uh, during the pandemic, uh, which in some ways people are, uh, especially early in 2020, people were around and bored. And so maybe I had the advantage uh, that some people had time on their hands to talk to me over Zoom. Uh, but, you know, it's also like a shortcoming that, that I think conversations in person are obviously much more valuable. Uh, and I also have the benefit of a lot of the book relies on, you know, YouTube video and just that massive catalog of, of information there. So your reporting covers decades. I mean, you go back to the very, very early years. So you've got a history in there, but you're also taking on the big sort of cultural questions and challenges facing YouTube today. Shashir, you joined YouTube in 2008, I believe. 2008, that's right. Um, did Mark get it right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mark, Mark, Mark got most of it right, I think, yes. <laughs> but what was your, what was it like for you to read a book about your 
company, you, you're in the book um, uh, from a different perspective. Well, I I was just telling Mark, I feel like he he sent me some early parts. And so I've been seeing some of it unfold. But um, for the last couple of days, I kind of went back through it and like the final version. And it was was interesting to go back and see where the stories ended up. And uh, first of all, I learned a lot, which was kind of surprising. I think uh, I think YouTube generally has like the book kind of takes it through three arcs. It's kind of the phase uh, the early phase before the acquisition, lots of Chad and Steve stories. And then there's a phase where, where I was most there in that sort of early figuring out the path, wandering in the desert. And then, then I kind of like finding its, its moment. And then, um, and then the phase that, that YouTube is in now. And, um, I kind of learned a lot about, you know, uh, both of them, which I thought was, was, was really interesting. And I thought Mark's covered, um, things for, uh, I've watched Mark cover lots of things. So I felt it was, it was likely to be fair and, and wanted to make sure that the stories were told well. So I was excited to be a part of it. So Mark, I think maybe let's set some context that'll help us for the rest of this conversation. But you know, because you cover so much ground, try to dial it down to us, for us. What do you think were, over the last 20 years, a few of the most pivotal moments in YouTube's history? So I think, I mean... One thing, and we'll just start with Shashir here, is like that one thing I didn't appreciate going into this research is sort of how right now from where we stand and even when I started the book in in like early 2020, YouTube was this giant and like had conquered digital video um, and online advertising. Wasn't always the case. And I think um, Shashir can definitely speak to this, like the business really struggled for its first several years. And I think uh, it was sort of, uh, you know, someone compared it to like the JV team at Google too. Um, and so I think there were some key decisions uh, at the company, you know, one early on uh, that that should get a lot of credit is Content ID, which is their copyright rights management tool. Uh, and I think was invented around 2007. The context here was, was YouTube was being sued uh, by Viacom, the owner of MTV and Comedy Central for what Viacom claimed was, was pirating material. And so YouTube built this system, like a fingerprinting ID system, um, that very simple elementary explanation, like is able to identify all like IP and copyrighted material. And then what the genius there was that they went to the copyright owners and said, we can take this down or we can leave this up and you get the ad revenue. Um, and I think, I mean, I'm curious if Shashir agrees, like that was probably the single most important product um, for, for YouTube's early years. Uh, and then the second, I think, decision, and, and this was when Shashir was there, was to to uh, switch to watch time, which had a uh, tremendous consequence as far as like previously YouTube prioritized videos and search and recommendation that got the most clicks and views and like playbacks. And then they moved to the longest engagement, um, which I think at the time was solving a problem of, of clickbait of like videos that people started to watch and then went away. And I I mean, I'd be curious to hear Shashir's thoughts. Like, I think there was a concern inside the company, like, that it's hard to believe now, but like, we're worried that people might not spend a lot of time on YouTube. Um, And so that was a a consequential decision that like created entire new categories of what we now dominate YouTube, like video game play, beauty, makeup tutorials, um, kids content, which virtually didn't exist before then. This was a decade ago. Um, and then had a lot of, I think, downstream consequences that the company is like still sort of wrestling with. I, I might add just one more in between them, which was the the choice to allow people to monetize. I think that's uh, uh, which which is a consequence of the content ID change. I mean, the content ID change. It's it's hard to underestimate how hard a product that was, and it continues to be, um, and how consequential it was. And and maybe one thing people don't realize is it technically wasn't required. I mean, the the way the law is structured. The DMCA actually offers a lot of protection um, for companies, and uh, in that lawsuit, the Viacom lawsuit, we ended up winning. Just maybe as a for people who are not familiar with the the way it works, is the platforms are protected by um, this thing called the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which basically says if you don't control what's going on the platform. Um, then you can't be held accountable for the infringement or to put it in much more layman's terms. It sort of puts the onus on the copyright holder to, to come and ask for uh, what should be there and what shouldn't. And the, the pivotal moment in that case, and Mark covers this well in the book is, um, you know, Viacom sued us. And then it turned out, they said, Hey, all this stuff is up on, on YouTube. Why can't you take it down? 
And we said, look, we can we can tell you if it's there. We don't know if we should take it down because we don't know if you want it there or not. And they said, they said, well, we just want it all down. We said, that's not true. And it turned out that Viacom employees were uploading uh, some of the most popular content. And we said, actually, this is really important that you decide what you want to do. And they had a good reason for it. It was like an incredible marketing tool for all, like from any of the shows that they were trying to get to, to be popular. And so Content ID was this, was this step of, okay, we don't technically need to do this, but we can. And if we do then we can have a better relationship with, um, with the content community. That allowed us to then go have the conversation around uh, opening up monetization, which happened, I think Mark covered it pretty well, but you know, a big debate about doing it because for a long time, if you wanted to make money on YouTube, you had to be invited. We had a special program called YouTube Partner Program and we had a set of criteria, but it was fairly subjective. You kind of had to know somebody and it didn't feel, you know, to use, you know, uh, terminology from uh, from a different medium, it didn't feel that different from like negotiating with the cable industry. Like you kind of needed to know somebody to be able to get to, to, to get uh, monetized. It wasn't the same people, but it had a similar feel to it. And we made this pretty consequential call. And I can tell you what it was driven by in a moment, but basically said that anybody, uh, that we're going to put an automated system that allows anybody to make money on, on YouTube. Um, and it was very heavily debated. I mean, it was, um, there was obviously an economic reason to do it. Uh, it, it allowed much more of YouTube to, to create money, but there was a philosophical reason to do it too, which is we felt it was very important that, that, um, if we, if we're going to allow big rights holders to, to make money, we should allow the, the next generation of content creators to do the same thing. And, um, and we had these sort of formative stories around it, but I think it's still, YouTube is still the largest platform by far that, that actually pays its creators directly. Um, and, and it's, uh, I think one of the biggest advantages cause it created this enormous flywheel. I mean, I would see people that, I mean, that would say, um, I just got my first hundred dollar check from YouTube and they'll like drop everything and change their career. And it, it, it was like, cause it, once they got a sense of like, this is a platform, it's fair, I can make. I can make a business this way. Um, you know, people change their their viewpoint. So yeah, content ID that one, and then the watch time one. Yeah, I mean the watch time one was and Mark covers this pretty well in the book. But the was technically driven by a flawed previous metric. I mean the views was just turned out to be you know for a long time the YouTube homepage said like how many video views served, kind of like McDonald's showed how many hamburgers served, and they eventually gave up on that. It's not turned out not to be a really good metric for them in kind of the same ways that was falling apart. But at the same time, the real reason we did it was um, we were, our innovation was flatlining and our and the numbers were starting to flatline too, which is not that obvious how to get to that that next stage. And um, and so we made this consequential decision, the billion hour goal, and switched uh, from views to watch time all at the same time. But I, those are three moments, yeah. Billion hours a day. Yeah. Shashir, wasn't that your, well, as Mark, t- wasn't that your goal? Like you set a very ambitious goal of a billion hours. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, the, the team set it together. But yes, I think that was, um, let, let's say I got, I got blamed for it a, for a long time before I got credit for it. <laughs> um, but it was this, uh, it was this moment and where we had just kind of lost, sort of lost the plot. I, you know, I have this, this, when you work on a business, sometimes you get to work on things that have like deep competition um, and you like yearn for this, what happens when we win. And we had kind of like won. Like it was like anything we defined as the core market for online video platforms, we were, you know, a hundred X bigger than the next biggest one. And it was like, in some senses felt good because it's like not obvious this platform should even have survived. Um, but in other cases, it was just like impossible to know what to do next. And so we needed something that helped people set a bigger target. Um, and so that's how we came up. We were, we were half of Facebook. Yeah, I mean, actually, maybe it's worth putting in context. At the time, Billion Hours, so this was 2012, and the um, uh, I gave the talk to the, the YouTube leadership group at this conference we held in LA. Um, and the I said, hey, here's what our goal is. In the next four years, we'll get to a billion hours of watch time per day. Um, 
And the first question you might ask is, what the hell is a billion hours of watch time feel like? And for better or worse, like a billion views felt very tangible. Kind of people misunderstood it because they thought it meant like a billion people watched, which is not really true. They, they thought, they, but they, 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 it felt tangible. Like you could understand what a view was. But you know, if you add up how many hours did you spend on a particular site, like it's not actually that tangible. And so I had to explain it a bit. And, I, and so we said, well, we were at about 100 million hours at the time. And I went through all the Google properties first and said, Google.com was at about the same amount, which is a dumb metric for Google because the whole point is getting on and off the site. And then, um, you know, Gmail and Google Maps and so on were all below 20 million hours, like incredibly pop popular products, but were well below us. And so we were really big from that perspective. But Facebook was at 200 million hours. They had just announced it in one of their earnings releases. So we had like one stat for, for Facebook and we're quite certain they were the only property in the internet bigger than us. But television, we, we thought was five and a half billion hours a day. And so the, the whole motivation was if we get to a billion hours a day, it'll be 10x bigger than we are now, 5x bigger than anything else on the internet, but we're still only gonna be 20% of what people are spending time on with television. And our whole theory around YouTube was that online video would do to cable what cable did to broadcast. And so that transition you know, was, was very motivating. And all of a sudden we went from being a little bit kind of topped at, at the top of our perch feeling like, okay, we're kind of done to, oh man, we're just getting started. And it kind of galvanized the next few years of uh, innovation, I think in a mostly positive way. A lot of ground there. So many different directions uh, we could go. You know, one of the things, Mark, I, I feel like honestly, in, until fairly recently, YouTube was kind of like this cute business, cat videos. They didn't, you, Google didn't really talk about how much money it was making and how many people were watching and how many hours. And then kind of just in the last few years, became more public about releasing some statistic, but still doesn't tell us everything. Mark, can you just sort of tell us by the numbers how big YouTube is as we know, as far as we know today? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're kind of like just get a little glimpses behind the curtain. Um, so they started sharing ad revenue in late 2019, and it only goes back to, to, to 2017. Um, but from that, so that period, uh, 2017, that year, they made uh, about uh, more than $8 billion in ad revenue. Last year was close to $29 billion. Um, That was a big jump. I think Shashir could probably have better sense about that growth from like 2012 to, to 2017. Um that I think, like, I mean, I don't think they've updated the billion hours since 2016 as far as watch time. The most recent stat that was just mind blowing to me was uh, 700 million hours of daily footage watched just on television screens. So that's not, I, I assume that YouTube's primary screen is now the, the mobile phone and then desktop computer. So <laughs> just on TVs alone, which is a new market that they're really pushing into, 700 million hours. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, the other stat that's kind of mind blowing is the 500 hours of, of video, new video footage is uploaded every minute to YouTube. I, that was, I think that stat is a few years old. YouTube is now turning into podcasting and like trying to convince podcasters to come on YouTube. As we all know, podcasters can just talk and talk and talk. So that is hours of more footage coming up uh, every day. I mean, maybe, maybe just put in context, the other side of that, um, when I joined 2008, um, less than 30 million in revenue um, the and losing hundreds of millions of do dollars a year. And you want to know why we didn't talk about YouTube publicly very much. It was a pretty crappy business for a long time. <laughs> and it wasn't exactly something you bragged about. Um, and so it's, I think it's totally commendable what, what the team has done and how it's grown since then. It, it's also, it's hard to dis, uh, decouple YouTube's business from Google is my sense, like in part because it's hard to say, how much of uh, how much of YouTube success is built on Google's machine learning, Google's ads business, their ad tech, Google salespeople? So I think that's another like I don't that's not an excuse for why the company doesn't share any numbers, but I, I do think that like the numbers alone are not necessarily that telling. So you know, obviously, it sounds great from a business perspective, but. The question is, is a billion hours of watch time a day or however much it is now, is that good for society? And how much did you guys think about that, Shashir, in those early yeah, days I, when you were setting these benchmarks? And and how do you think about it now? Yeah, I could talk about both, but let, I'll start with what, what happened then. When we set the billion hour goal, it was easily the number one question. It was like, is it actually a good idea that the people watch a billion hours a day? 
of YouTube. And we would really wrestle with it. I mean, it was a clearly a galvanizing thing for the business. And it was, you know, remember that we were like choosing a billion hours over views and views are really no better I mean, from, from any of those perspectives. Um, uh, so that choice in itself didn't reflect what that question implies. It's like, is people watching more YouTube a good thing or a bad thing? The, um, and we developed a nomenclature around it um, that came from a guy named Hunter Walk, who's uh, now a famous venture capitalist and uh, was the first head of product um, uh, for YouTube uh, after the acquisition. And Hunter was at the time working on this thing called YouTube for Good. He had sort of convinced us to, to build this this initiative. And Hunter had this really unique way of looking at things. And, and he kind of stuck in our heads this idea of um, you can choose to be nutritious or delicious. And this, this phrase got used over and over again. Um, and, you know, in case it's not obvious, you know, we thought of like Whole Foods is nutritious and Safeway is delicious. And they, they can both be great businesses, but it's not necessary to, to necessarily, like you can build a business that happens to be um, large and choose to do it in a way that's nutritious or choose to do it in a way that's delicious. And interesting, whenever I give companies suggestions on this, I think the first thing you have to figure out is, is your business one where being nutritious is good for business or not? And, you know, there's a lot of businesses for which it's, it's just not. And then, and, you know, the most extreme examples, of course, like cigarette companies and so on, like, it's just not, you know, so what do they do? They try to make up for it in other ways. They contribute to charities. They run, they, they, you, you have to like kind of do things separately to account for the fact that you're not necessarily good for society. We were fairly convinced at YouTube that YouTube being nutritious was good for business, that they would actually make watch time move. It would make revenue move. It would bring more creators. And we thought, you know, we were very convinced of it. Um, and so we took a, we took an approach at the time of trying to build it into our product development. And, you know, I would say I, I left before some of this really played out. Um, and I think the world has changed around it a bit, but it was a very deep question. The way we measured it, by the way, with everything we did at YouTube was, you know, nowadays we think of it as machine learning and AI, but you know, all the systems were automated and the, um, um, it was hard to like make a statement about goals and not reflect it in the metrics. Like if you if you're gonna if you're gonna say something like we want to be more nutritious than delicious, you have to find a way for the humans to understand it and the machines to understand it. So we did this like really simple idea is we we built a standing survey that ran while you watch YouTube, where it would it would instead of showing an ad or a video, it would show the, the set of four choices. And it would say, what is a more uh, better use of an hour of your time? And the four choices were um, uh, reading a book, going to the gym, watching television, or watching YouTube. And the, these are the four choices. And we didn't need to, like, the goal wasn't necessarily to win. It was like a very high bar to try to, like, beat reading a book or, or going to the gym or so on. But it was to calibrate, and it was to give the machine something to tune for. So now when we go and say, hey, is watch time going up or down, and you run an experiment, we could also then go look at what happened to the nutrition score. And over time, they've kind of evolved that to a set of different metrics. Now Nowadays, I think they call it um, high quality watch time. And, and there's some other ways of looking at it. But I, it's been a, it's, I think it was a heavily discussed topic even then. And it's become an even more heavily discussed, discussed topic since then. But I think the key insight is I think YouTube being nutritious is good for business. And that, that is not true of every platform. Right. I, I wonder, and I think we can all agree there's plenty of nutritious, plenty of delicious, but there might be a third category, which neither of those things account for, which is like downright unhealthy or, you know, like nicotine, addictive, bad. I mean, Mark, and I want to give you an opportunity to talk about this. I mean, you open with a scene of a mass shooting of the shooter was radicalized on, on YouTube and um, misinformation. I have I have four kids who, who, who watch YouTube from time to time. You know, it's like, you know, my their biggest joy, my biggest fear um, is what they're going to, what rabbit hole they're going to go down. So Mark, I would love for you to lay out some of the biggest um, challenges that you, I mean, obviously they face so many challenges over the years and we can't, there's just no way we can, we can talk about them all, but the, there's a lot of them in the books. So can... Yeah. Well, yes, you yeah. can read about them. You can read yeah, about yeah. them. Did I say you could read about them? Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah. you know, and you do such an excellent job of going through, uh, you know, the, taking us up and down on the roller coaster. But, um, you know, let's walk through some of the the maybe not nutritious or delicious things that are, you know, really. Well, even I mean, I can start with that because I think that that um, my understanding is like that was that's a really difficult thing for YouTube to solve. It, it, you're effectively trying to like program 
quality into an algorithm, uh, which is hard to do. It, I, I, I don't, I mean, I never got a clear sense about like what is nutritious. I mean, I think we can agree like Khan Academy, like the SciShow crash, like there are, there's a bunch of really good educational content on YouTube that, that does, it's informative and intelligent and brilliant in a way that like nothing on TV is. Um, but it's, there's a lot of gray stuff in the middle. Um, and I think, I, I don't, I mean, I, I think my sense is that YouTube sort of gave up on that metric for a few years and then has kind of come back to it after a lot of criticism after 2016. Um, so yeah, I think, I mean, certainly, you know, the book spends, as you mentioned, like it opens in, in Christchurch shooting, which was like a devastating a tragedy for, for YouTube for a variety of reasons, like the shooter, um, uploaded the footage live as a live video and it made its way to YouTube and YouTube had to like squash out a bunch of re-uploads, which is just like a horrific side of humanity. Right. Um, the shooter mentioned PewDiePie, who was the biggest, uh, YouTuber at the time. And, um, and I think, and ever since then has like rewritten their rules around hate speech, um, trying to deal with like how to define what is extremism, uh, where to draw those lines. Like those are not easy in defense of the company, they're not easy problems to solve, but they are like the, the company's responsibility. Um, and I think that they've been, what, what I thought was really interesting is like those lines have changed a lot in, in the history of the history of the, the platform and the company. Um, you've seen almost like a more willingness to, I think this makes sense. YouTube's become bigger. It is now like uh, under the threat of regulation. And in some areas like children's content, it's actually being regulated in a, in a new in, uh, way than it hasn't before. And, but it's much more uh, willing to concede to governments in particular like the U S government um, than it was in the past. And so I, there's a really interesting example from Shashir's time of this video called the innocence of Muslims, which was a, a trailer for a movie that was never made as far as I understand. Um, I watched it. It's like 12 minutes long. It's, I wouldn't, I would not call it nutritious or delicious. Uh, it was like a, yeah, it was a, it was a bad movie, but, it, and it's, and it's, um, it was an Egyptian man, a Christian man who was making, uh, depicting the prophet Muhammad in Islam as this like backwards religion. Uh, and at the time, I, I think like the lawyers working for the company were like, we don't, you know, it, it was hard to say this is, this is a call for incitement to violence. Uh, I think the video was up for several weeks before there were protests um, about it. Uh, and ultimately, the, the company's decision was we're not going to remove this. We'll, we'll remove it in certain countries. Uh, Egypt, I think, was one and, and maybe Libya because um, it was around the same time as Benghazi. So, like, it, it was. Yeah. That's right. Um, but, but like, like uh, the Obama State Department asked for that uh, video to come down and it, like, making the argument that it was a, yeah, a connection to real world harm. Um, I think the company's, my sense is that if that happened today, that that video would come down in a millisecond. Which is interesting. Shashir, can you give us an yeah. idea of just like being behind the scenes, just how hard is it to work at a company like yeah. this where users around the world are uploading so much every day and it, it, how hard is it to keep up? And does, does every day start with like your email exploding and a headache or is it not like that behind the scenes? I mean, my it, 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 well. So first off, um, content moderation on YouTube was always a challenge, but with a very different, you know, uh, worry point. So like in the early days, it was all about porn. It was like, how do you keep porn off the site? And that actually turned out to be a kind of solvable problem. Like we we mostly and you know we built these things that people love to talk about where you could build skin detection algorithms and like there's edge cases, but you could come, you could come awfully close at stopping it and then use flagging and reviewing to be able to deal with the rest. Um, then the next phase became about copyright and copyright was where content ID was invented. And there again, we like found a pretty reasonable way to do it, but we had like a pretty clear benchmark. It's not totally clear. As an example, if you, um, and, and you should know that like what, whatever the line was, the people trying to exploit the line are heavily incented to work right at the boundary. I mean, we would watch people upload movies to YouTube that they would take it, they would flip it upside down, they would slow the speed down, they would tilt it 10 degrees, um, they would run parts of it backwards. And you would look at it and you say, like, why would anybody watch this? And people watched it. And they, but they, they, they would just find every way 
to try to get around us. But that was kind of phase phase two. Like we went from porn to content ID. Then it became about advertiser safety. We spent a long time on like part of one of the initiatives I started was uh, we gave a effectively a GPG PG30 rating to every video on YouTube. Um, mostly not really focused on users. We only exposed it actually to advertisers. Um, and then gradually, so each phase has been a little bit different. And I would argue each one has become a little bit harder. The other thing I'd say about it that that is maybe not obvious to people is when you're running a product like YouTube, there are two very different types of speech regulation. Like you can't run a product like that and not become an expert in, in not only free speech laws in the US, but free speech laws in every country in the world. But there's two different bars you're always hitting. So one is the legal bar and the other is the community bar. And the legal bar is every platform uh, has to meet the bar of what is legally allowed in every country. And so, and sometimes you make a stand that is, you know, you can have an opinion on it. So as an example, we decided to, YouTube was blocked in Turkey almost the entire time I was there because we decided they had a law that said, if you criticize the Ataturk, then it's illegal. And we decided the law was unfair and we would take, we took out all of YouTube. Um, I almost took down all of YouTube in Germany for a, for a similarly badly worded law um, and the, the government relented. And so but when you're in the legal side, you're like judging like what what and you have to learn And every country in the world has a different set of laws. Like if we think it's consistent, it's not at all. Um, and then there's a second set that I, I call the community guidelines. That's what they're referred to. But I think a better analogy for it is tending a garden. So you've got. The law allows you to do this. Technically, the law allows you to have porn on the side. The law allows you to have uh, all sorts of different things, but you don't want it. And like, why don't you want it? Because there's certain types of content that act like weeds in a garden, that if you let them take over, they will, uh, if you let them sprout, they will take over the entire thing. And so why do most of these uh, products not allow porn? It's not because the law does, uh, requires it. It's because you come to a viewpoint that says, if we do this, it will eventually squash the good plants. It's kind of another form of thinking of why it's so important to be nutritious versus delicious is because if you cross a certain line, people like people won't come. If they think that's what the product is about, what the platform is about. Go ahead, Mark. Oh, I was gonna, I'm curious about because the, the two, I think m m the most significant product changes they've made since, since you left and uh, around content moderation is one is what, what YouTube calls borderline videos that are like you, you talked about videos that go right up to the rules around hate speech, harassment, um, but, but don't violate them. So they started in 2019, uh, just not recommending them to viewers. And the second one is, is uh, demonetization. Like they just remove ads from certain videos or channels. I'm curious what you like, why the, you think that wasn't used beforehand uh, was there some reluctance to use those tools? Is it like technically challenging? Well, the, so so there's there's one question is, can you identify legal community, what you want to have happen and what can you do about it? Um, and I mean, the, the main mechanism we used that had a very similar effect was age gating. Age gating basically, this, it, it, because of age gated videos were removed from, from recommendations, it had basically the same impact. Um, but now they have a very specific toggle for remove from recommendations. But we did the same thing. I mean, there's the... the uh, like you talk about in the book about blurred lines and what we did with Robin Thicke. Um, that was an example of one where we, we uh, put it behind an age gate and then we pulled it back out. So what, what keeps you from doing that? Well, the reason uh, in my mind is, okay, so there's two types of re regulation. You're running on these properties. You got to deal with every country in the world. And then you decide what are my community guidelines. And for your community guidelines, you kind of don't have anything to escalate to. Like you're going to write this thing. And like the, the law is in most cases, it's not a clear, like free speech law is constantly, there's a reason why Supreme Court cases on it every year. Um, it's not clear, but it's like, there's a place to escalate it to, you can judge, um, you know, is this content meant to radicalize or not? It's like really hard to judge. Um, and so you write these rules and you try to apply them as evenly as you can. And the, what happens with some of these cases is the rules are just incredibly hard to write. And if you can't write the rules and you can't properly enforce anything, and so you end up with these all these borderline cases, when you have this, uh, you know, I had this creator tell me once, and this was like a devastating realization, said, um, hey, you realize what everybody's doing. They upload their videos. They wait to see what their first few hours of traffic is. And based on that, they get a sense of like, how did the rating system judge them? And if it's a human, they'll like re-upload it and try again. Because if like a slightly different human will make a slightly different de decision. So I always say it's like the Velociraptors testing the fence. Like it's like, it's one thing to like, 
like deal with the obvious case that gets pointed out to you, but you can't do that. And and so you have you have to go through this broader set. I if I were to summarize all of this though, and this back to nutritious versus delicious, I don't think these platforms want any of these things. Like you don't want any of that any of that content. It's and I, I think the business motivations are generally aligned to it. I get asked a lot about like does billion hour goal and so on. Did it incent leaving stuff up? It's like not at all. Like, there's no there's no question that the the, um, there was no pressure of like leave innocence of Muslims up because of watch time. It was, it, definitely not. But we knew that if we took that down and tried to write that rule, then you'd have to take down every piece of, of anything that touches any religious religious commentary anywhere. And that was like, we were unwilling to hold that line. And we didn't think we could hold that line. And so we couldn't add it to community guidelines. And so we didn't. Um, but I think it's mostly, it is hard. It's very hard. So, um, so you make a really great point that Okay, first it was porn. Well, I don't actually think of a YouTube as having a porn problem. Seems to be under control. Yeah. Content, I mean, copyright seems to be under control. Unfortunately, for a lot of people who want to watch things for free. Mm-hmm. But can you really get hate and misinformation and borderline videos under control when so much of that stuff is subjective? And Shashir, I want you to address that, and then Mark, I want you to answer a question from the audience, which is: Is YouTube doing enough? So Shashir first. I have a short version of this, which is if a human can't decide that it's incredibly hard to imagine a machine can. And one of the reasons why porn and copyright were easier is at the end of the day it was relative, like you get, you know, nine, 10 humans together, or you get a hundred of them together, 99 of them will agree. Like, and, and for copyright, the hard part actually wasn't identification. The hard part was the, was getting the rights holders to give us, give us their view on what they should do with it. Um, so they were each a little bit different. Um, I think some of the problems that YouTube is dealing with now, you get a hundred people together and have them watch the same content, you won't get agreement. Um, and then I think it's a really hard standard to hold uh, hold to, but I think they are trying. I mean, I don't think there's any lack of effort in in what they're trying to do. It's just, I, I think it's, and I don't think it's hard because it's not, you can write programs to do just about anything, but if a human can't do it, a machine can't do it. Well, I mean, it goes back to the broader question of, you know, we've tech has created these monsters slash behemoths. That's they're bigger than governments, bigger than countries together around the world. And do you think YouTube is doing enough to fight misinformation? I mean, is there is this seems to be so beyond the scale of the problems that YouTube has has tackled in its earlier years? Um, And will they will they be able to do it? Uh, yeah, I think so. YouTube looks very different than than uh, when Shashir was there, in, in, and it looks very different from what it was a few years ago, right? Like, so um, you know, they are now removing, or, or at least their policies in place to remove videos that question the efficacy of uh, not just COVID nineteen vaccines, which is a big change, but actual like any vaccines whatsoever. Um, we got Shashir back. Uh, so I think that, and they, no, they've uh, they've changed. I'm just answering the question about. The incredibly broad question. They, uh, I, I, I mean, they've done, I think what, what is, if you're a YouTube, if you're an Alphabet shareholder, um, you probably think YouTube's done enough given that like that they, the brand safety problem, like, uh, five years ago, they had uh, every, like every major advertiser that was boycotting the site. Like that doesn't happen anymore. So they've at least, uh, solve that problem where like the problem of, of advertisers sponsoring videos they don't want to sponsor really doesn't exist anymore. Um, I think, you know, God, there's, there, there are a lot of interesting, there are people on, on all sides of the debates about whether or not they've, they've dealt with, um, I guess the two major issues in the U S is, is the, you know, the pandemic and the elect 2020 election. Um, and they've changed their policies on that. Um, I mean, I think what, you know, is really important and they don't, I feel like it's uh, the book was is long and so, but it doesn't get enough. Like YouTube is a global platform. There is misinformation and hate speech problems in India. It's biggest market that we probably like. We can't, you know, like they certainly. I've talked to people there like struggle with issues around caste um, and race in India and politics there. And you have governments in India and Russia like asking YouTube to take down videos because they're they're misinformation or extremism, and you have dissidents and critics in the country saying, no, no, these are just criticizing the government. Um, and, and so I think that that is a I mean, it, it's an important point that first of all, YouTube's global, so they have to deal with it everywhere. And there's a lot of conjecture that maybe the government should deal with it. And I do think there are governments in the world that deal with it well and governments that don't. 
Um, there are governments that have, for example, rules around election misinformation. Um, there are also governments, a number of governments in the world that says you can't criticize current leaders. Um, and we generally would, like the Ataturk example in, in Turkey is one example of that, but Thailand has a very similar law. Uh, a lot of the Middle Eastern countries have similar laws. Like that, that, that's a thing you have to deal with is like, is that okay? And one of the things that, um, that I think you asked the question, has YouTube done enough? I would also ask the question, has the government done enough? And clarifying, like, I mean, I would, I would look at pandemic response as a great example of, I think that's not, I think that's a government uh, shortfall. I think the fact that we politicized a thing that should have been a fact-based thing, that's a role the government should play. It's not a role that, you know, and I think they did a poor job of it. It's a it's a thirty billion dollar advertising business that's like running you know programming. So I think they have they they have some uh, in in whether or not they like they want to be responsible for running like an advertising business on on COVID misinformation. Uh, I think one thing that they are lacking is is explaining them. They've gotten much better at like explaining how the algorithm works, how their policies work. Uh, um, but I, you know, I think even someone who spends most of his time, like trying to understand this, like the average viewer has no idea what's happening. The average creator has no idea what's happening. Uh, and I think that's a shortfall that, that the company still, still work, needs to work on. Um, so there's a lot, I want to talk about kids. I want to talk about creators. I want to talk about Trump. I want to talk about TikTok. I don't know if we're going to get through it all, but, um, 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 before we go on to that, I do want to talk, you know, make sure that we uh, talk about the current leadership at the company. Susan Wojcicki is the CEO of YouTube. Um, Mark, you've got some fascinating detail about um, her appointment as CEO. Shashir, I'm curious how that struck you, given that it seemed like you were maybe in line to have that job and how you received that news and whether you think she's a good leader for YouTube today. I think Susan's fantastic. Susan was my first boss at Google. Um, she pulled me in. She's the reason I worked on YouTube. She, when Eric asked someone to go and help out YouTube, she pulled me from uh, what I was working on at the time. I was working on uh, a product that became Google TV. And she pulled me over there um, to work on YouTube. And we worked very closely together. She ran the ads team at that time. And, and um, so I think she's a great choice. I mean, the, the, um, I think when the Larry made the choice around it, there are a lot of considerations in it that, you know, some of which I knew about, some of which I didn't um, learn about later and so on. I think it, it, from my perspective, I was done. I was ready for my next thing. And, you know, I think um, there's probably ways that that could have happened that would have been, you know, different. But in the end, I think YouTube ended up with a great leader and shepherd for what was going forward. I mean, the thing you like hate to think about when you're leaving something like YouTube is like, have I gone far enough that the, the next person can take it? I mean, I, I was never intending to work there forever. And, you know, I think the last, she's now, you know, run YouTube longer than I was ever there and, and, uh, and I've done a fantastic job as far as I can tell. And, and I think that's, uh, I think that's amazing. So, um, yeah. So continues to be a great friend lives nearby us. Um, and the only positive things to say about Susan, very talented leader. Mark, you point out that, you know, especially the you know public facing Susan, that, you know, she talks a lot about being a mom. The title of the chapter is Mother of Google. Um, I've interviewed her many times. I actually I love he, talk, talking to her about her, her, her kids and particularly of interest to me is her view on YouTube kids and how, how it impacts kids. Um, and I learned so much from your book about just the cottage industry of parent content creators who, you know, they're new, you know, my, my two-year-old is singing family finger. And this is a totally new, I, I'm like, where did this song come from? And it's like all over YouTube. And now I know because of your book. <laughs> Um, my, my, oh, oh, sorry. Well, I want you to, can you talk a little first, maybe that's like a good example of, to explain, of you know, just, you know, where these songs and, and where this content comes from and how is YouTube actually thinking about it? Because, you know, sometimes I look at this stuff and I'm like, this is, it's, this is not quality content. It's keeping my kids engaged, 
but this is this can't be good for their brain. Just super delicious. Um, I uh, yeah, I mean, I think YouTube built the world's biggest kids entertainment service, um, probably without really trying. I, I mean, my my favorite party trick sometimes in these conversations is like go. There's a website called Tube Filter that's like a billboard for YouTube that has every week the top video channels by views and it is consistently like Coco Melon. Uh, maybe you, I'm sure you know with young kids. Um, in similar, like both videos for designed for for children and starring young children. Uh, there are multi million dollar businesses now. Uh, Moonbug Entertainment's a big one. Like the most the most highly paid YouTuber is uh, he's nine or maybe ten now. Ryan Kaji. Um, so it, it is transforming uh, the way kids entertainment works. Uh, I think just beginning to do so. Um, I also think that YouTube kid. I mean, so they they launched the app and um, to share my. Remember 2015, early 2015. Yeah. And it was designed to be for children under 13. I think the company's one of the problems with this is that I, I mean, I'm sure that Emily, you have this, like once the kid is like over the five or six, like they don't want to be using the, the app for t- little kids. I think a lot of the content on YouTube kids was designed for children, very young children. And so you have this like tween audience that is, is just going to youtube.com. And, and I think, has been uh, since the beginning. So it wasn't, I, I don't think they've shared any numbers in the past recent years, but the latest is like 20 million monthly users, which is just paltry compared to, to YouTube. So 2 billion plus. Um, it's also the one, I mean, it is the one area where Cong, not Congress, but where DC has actually regulated big tech uh, and like anything, right? Um, it, uh, the FTC sued YouTube in 2019 for violating children's privacy laws and uh, about data collection. In that case, I found out in the reporting was in part because after YouTube Kids launched, there were some advocacy groups that that came in and like noticed the app, um, started paying more attention, started complaining to the FTC. That got the agency's attention. Uh, ever since then, YouTube has really changed. I mean, they're like much heavier kind of curation and, and like handholding um, than they ever were before, not just in the kids app, but I think around the kids space, like you can't right now, if you upload a video to YouTube, you have to um, click a button on the dashboard that says this video is made for kids or not. And if it's made for kids, you can't have comments, you can't have targeted ads. Um, it's a very different, there's like basically like two YouTubes, right? Um, in part because regulators stepped in. I think YouTube also kind of woke up to the fact that um, this was a really significant part of their, their business. And I mean, and, you know, during the pandemic, I'm sh- I don't think they've shared the number, but I'm sure their, their traffic on kids' videos have just gone like gangbusters since then. Shashir, how well do you think Google, I mean, YouTube is handling the kids' conundrum and what do you think they can do better? And can't can they? It's an impossible situation. And I, I think it's this like, first off, the product is magical for kids of all ages. And, and from a nutritious, line, you know, I, I had a friend um, who at one point said, oh, my God, he was so thankful. It's like my son watches planes take off every day and and Southwest planes in particular. I'm like, really? Southwest planes? And like, what are, the, what are the videos like? He's like, literally, people shoot footage of planes taking off. And this is like, this is how he relaxes and he gets excited about planes and he asks about flight and he's like you know is that nutritious delicious? i don't know i mean it's like it's a little bit of both it's like it's not not the worst thing you could be watching as a kid what like what service on the planet would have generated a cable channel for for that kid that would have you know and i hope he grows up to be a top gun pilot and and like it's like i don't know we'll see but it's like you know imagine if you could take a kid like that and really feed that that energy but the product could be absolutely magical for kids um, but it's really hard to keep kids safe. I, I think, and this is maybe, I don't work at YouTube anymore, so I think I'm allowed to say stuff like this, but I think, I think the DMCA is one of the most magical pieces of legislation that Congress has ever passed. And it's like, it's really, um, uh, it's really forward looking in, in a practical way to encourage innovation. I think COPPA, the Children's Online Pro- uh, Privacy Act is, is a, is the opposite. I think it's protecting kids from the wrong things. Um, I think it actually doesn't help much. And what it leads to is a lot of services inventing things that actually don't help your kids be more safe, but creates these like barriers. And, and I mean, I, we had this, I had this dinner party once and I just asked everybody, you know, who here 
has a kid under 13 who has an account on every one of these services. And what did you say their age was? And like, so now we have a whole generation of kids who are 113 years old. Um, and every, every, like, I mean, did you open an account for your kids when they were born? Like everybody does. It's like, it's like obvious. And the regulation is protecting them from like all the wrong things. Like we sh- I want parental controls. I want to be sure I can log in. I want I, like, and it's like, that's not what the regulation covers at all. Um, and so I think it's a, I think it is a case where there's more, can YouTube do more? Probably it's not, I think they are, as, as Mark pointed out, they're trying all sorts of things. I mean, it is that I was, uh, the, the thing about content targeted kids is a pretty extreme move um, and does sort of create these two YouTubes. Creating an app was like always a really hard choice that, as you mentioned, it's just like a tar- it'll end up targeting such a small portion of people because the real challenge isn't the two-year-old. The real challenge is the the eight-year-old and the 10-year-old. I mean, I have a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old and like that's an age where they're impressionable and they're not going to watch a thing built for that, that feels like it has a gate at all, right? And so, um, but I think that government can do more here and I don't think what they've done so far is actually made the world safer for our kids. And unfortunately, the platform spent so much time bending around it that they don't get to actually address the real problem of what would it take to make YouTube feel safe for our kids? Yeah, I think just to just to recap, like COPPA, as I understand it, is the law that is basically around data collection and privacy. But if you television, broadcast television is regulated by the FCC, you have to have a certain amount of educational minutes and like there are restrictions on advertising and like it, you know, there's all sorts of debates about that. But that was like the Sesame Street movement basically put laws in place and their child labor laws on, on TV. None of that exists on YouTube. And, and the company for a long time, because it was a service for like 13 and up, basically didn't have any incentives to to put those in place. And so I think I, I, I agree with Shashir in, in that sense that like the regulation is not it's pushing them to like address a very narrow part of the of the problem. Yeah. And, and to, to be clear, I'm not my I have a positive outlook on government. So I don't mean to say that because I think government's a wrong answer. I just think it took a long time before the FCC got to those guidelines for the cable world. And obviously you can't just copy and paste them into an online world, but it's like time for some really thoughtful people that know what they're talking about to go come up with a real real way to regulate what is reasonable and what's not. And I have high faith that the right set of government officials can do it. So speaking of governments, um, let's talk a little bit about Trump. Mark, how big a test was we, we I, you know, I feel like it's much more highly publicized how big a test Trump was for Twitter and Facebook, but less so perhaps that for YouTube. Uh, but it was a huge and very powerful platform for him. What is yeah, I mean, YouTube's pos- I mean, position on Trump as it stands? You know, Susan has said that the. the the ban, right, was temporary. Yeah, so he's he's indefinitely suspended, and I think the only account in the world that has that honor, um, uh, like like Facebook. Um, my my gut here is that YouTube will not move before Facebook. Uh, and the, what they've said officially is that they're they're waiting sort of the, for the threat to violence to subside. Um, he is Trump has a small just by subscribers and sort of following he's smaller on YouTube than he is on on Facebook and Twitter. I think YouTube's problem here is is different. Um, you know, let's take a, the you know you have a lot of candidates for office now running and repeating this claim that Trump won the election in 2020. Um, which you know if you're on CNN and someone says that the like the the sort of rules or the standard protocols, at least for like a CNN anchor is to push back on that and say, like, there's no evidence for this claim. Right. Um, there are YouTubers that now like conservative pundits and like they have pretty big followings that have these candidates on and they're making these claims too. YouTube has to decide and kind of adjudicate like, Oh, is this person treating this, uh, candidate, uh, as, a news anchor would, or is this person promoting the idea that the election was stolen? Um, and so they've they've uh, suspended one account for that. For a candidate in, in Arizona that came on this popular YouTuber, like I mean, it, it is the way that YouTube is designed is that anyone can sort of the, the the magic of YouTube is that anyone can be a celebrity, anyone can be a news channel and a political pundit, and so that I think is a more complicated problem than Trump. Well. I- and I want you to talk about this a little bit more because, you know, it seems like one of the things that YouTube has done well is getting certain kinds of extremism from other parts of the world 
under control, but domestic extremism is. Oh yeah, ISIS. ISIS virtually like doesn't exist on. I and mean, ISIS was a very bad problem. To Shashir's point, like if you put a hundred people in a room, when it comes to domestic extremism or even terrorism, um, is that something YouTube's going to be able to figure out? Uh, I mean, who knows what's going to happen in in the country's future? Uh, I think 2024, the election electoral politics certainly have a a significant part. I mean, the the important context here is that parent company Google is under, uh, you know, DOJ investigation. Uh, It it is under like every single state attorney general uh, suing Google. Like Google's under a a lot of political pressure. uh, And so I think very unwilling to make moves that upset uh, either party. Um, which has consequences for like their moderation decisions. I mean, they they removed pr- videos from Trump. They removed videos from um, Bolsonaro in Brazil around uh, COVID misinformation. So they made moves that, um, I mean, they've certainly like, it is shocking to me that YouTube is still operating in Russia, uh, despite the fact that they've like done a lot to, to tick off the Kremlin. Um uh, so I, I guess that's a, that's a long winded way of saying, like, I think, I think they're going to be, uh, just, just like all, like all platforms, they have to be, uh, they're going to be changing with political wins. Shashir, what do you think? I mean, this might be the what biggest I- test for YouTube, at least when it comes to American politics, right? The, the last few years. I, I, um, I have to say I was surprised, um, at that, that, um, they took down Trump. I don't, I don't. Let me say this as possibly as possible. They must have had so much pressure to make that decision because it, it doesn't match most other decisions you would make. Usually when making a decision like this, and I would encourage any of the audience and so on to, to pretend for a moment, you could take the sentence, you know, take down leader, you know, let's take down Trump's account in the United States, replace the name of the person and the name of the region or country with some other place. Take down, you know, leader X in country Y that lost an election. Like, what would it take to take someone down? Um, and then imagine doing that at like, like, I mean, Russia, for example, the leader who loses every election, like com- comes out and complains about it. And we think that's OK. I mean, he gets jailed for it and so on. But that one we think is OK. Um I think it happens all the time, especially when you get to smaller geographies. I mean, it happens in Sri Lanka. It happens in counties. And like, what are you, what are you going to do? So if you're going to write a, a rule like that, you have to say, if you lose, you're not allowed to complain about the election. That's like not a reasonable statement. Nobody would think that's a reasonable statement. Um, so I think that the pressure on this must have been so high to overcome what is an apparatus that is designed around really clear lines. Um, so I, I, I was surprised. Um and, you know, I think, as Mark mentioned, I don't think in a different environment it would have happened. So the, the pressure got to the to the company. I mean, they're all. Um, you know, what about company... like the incitement of violence? If it, you know, if you're talking about the Capitol riot yeah, so... or the misinformation, I want an elect. I, I want an election. You know, the, the I, I unfortunately know way too much about the law for incitement of violence and incitement of violence is an incredibly high bar for a court. Incitement violence is incredibly high bar. As an example, innocence of Muslims, part of the reason we left it up was no court in their right mind would have said it was incitement of violence. It caused violence. But causing violence is like the outcome, like one of the tests of content is not, you know, what the outcome is. It's what you have to actually judge the piece of content. Um, you know, pick another example. The ISIS ones were really tricky because you know what they, they figured out was um, one of the leaders figured out that they could come on YouTube and do um, uh, health and diet tips. And they would, they would literally come on and say, like, here's what you should eat in the morning and here's how to get healthy. And so, like, it's nothing about the content that you could take down. But the person was an incredibly evil person. And we knew that them being there allowed this community to form. And then they would find each other in the comments and then they'd reach each other on other platforms. It was like, bad. But what do you do? Like, you have a like and you have to hold a line somewhere. And clearly something about this caused a normal pressure valve to break. And I wasn't inside the decision, so I can't tell you exactly what happened there, but it must have been an incredibly hard decision. Yeah. So we only have a few more minutes left and um, some questions we didn't get to, but that are also a good place to end. Lightning round. (laughs) Uh, Mark, what are the biggest challenges facing YouTube today? Is it competition? Um, We haven't even gone to TikTok. Can YouTube out TikTok TikTok? Should that even be a goal? Uh, What do you think? 
Um, yeah, briefly, uh, I think TikTok is a new and profound uh, challenge to them because it's like Trishira mentioned earlier, like, no, YouTube has basically been the gold standard for the creator economy and no platform. Facebook has tried several different times and hasn't succeeded in actually paying online creators and TikTok is. I mean, it's not, listen, I think, you know, YouTube's about to announce something tomorrow morning that I think is a, a payment system for their shorts. Um, and I see like, talk about political pressure, like TikTok has so much more than YouTube does, given its Chinese ownership. I still think like there's the reporting in the book that Susan mentioned that regulation was was her greatest concern. And I still feel like that's probably holds true. Shashir, what do you think about the TikTok problem? It, um, I think TikTok's amazing. And it's sort of, it is amazing to me that we missed it. Um, and I, I, mean, I've spent, I spent a long time thinking about what did we miss? Like, what, how, how did we miss this? And there's, there's like so many things that went right to make TikTok happen and then and then cause people to uh, to come around. But I mean, I, I, if I were, I would give the same two answers you just gave, that if I were in Susan's shoes right now, I'd be worried about regulation and about TikTok. And TikTok, because, you know, when a medium changes like that, um, like every, everything changes, expectations change and, and uh, YouTube does currently have still the only scalable way to make money on video on the internet. And, you know, I know the TikTok leadership team pretty well too. And like they, 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 they haven't found a scalable way to pay creators yet. Um, and doing it with a fund is, doesn't align incentives quite the right way, um, but they will. I'm, I'm sure they will. And the, uh, there's a lot of pressure too, um, but I'd be, I'd be quite, uh, I'd be quite worried about that. It's kind of interesting to me how, like just from a product perspective, one of the things we really wrestled with is there's a lot of YouTube Facebook envy on, um, uh, I used to talk to the Facebook leadership team a bunch about, they were always very envious about a recommendation system. Like YouTube could, you know, the related video system on YouTube is very effective at driving people to the next set of things to go watch. Um, uh, one of the leaders there used to tell me that we're, we're like the only property on the internet that make good use of the right hand rail. Like every other property on the internet, the right hand rail is where stuff goes to die. Um, and we were always very jealous of the Facebook feed. Like you had this scrollable, like such an easy thing to consume. And YouTube with the feed was hard. Like you had to like click into each thing and, and like, uh, like uh, hovering over videos and other. And TikTok came out and all of a sudden they found a way to make the most engaging format on the planet with video um, scrollable in a feed. And it, and it was like, in retrospect, so obvious how they did it, but like we all missed it. Um, and so I, I gave, and I, I would give a lot of credit to Snap and Evan for kind of giving the, like the first step that became the story step that became the TikTok step, because I think all of those things all kind of, uh, or, oh yeah, sorry, I actually go back to Vine. Yes, that's right. But I think that idea of like a scrollable feed that is high quality, high engaging video, is just like an, an innovation that is hard to replace and everything else about it. Um, you can you can talk about, but I would be I'd be quite worried about that. What are you looking for as in terms of the future evolution of YouTube? What do you see as Facebook tries to spin into the metaverse? What does the future of YouTube look like with the advent of new technology and the development of AI? Uh, I mean, I do think that I mean Google is not clearly not going all in on the metaverse in the way that that Facebook has, um, but but I, I you know the, the extent to which they're they're planning for some sort of augmented reality or virtual world, like I think YouTube is their is their way in. Uh, I think that um, you know they have got like YouTube TV is another product like that over a top product which we haven't even talked about and and like that's sort of where youtube excels like it's not a content moderation problem it's just a technical problem and like youtube tv is like a very seamless great product um i like consumed all the nba playoffs with it like uh and so like i do think that youtube is moving more in that direction i think that's there's still this tension between you know youtube wants to court traditional media record labels uh and then it has this gigantic uh, jumble of, of a creative class that is often like competing with that. Uh, so I, I think, you know, in some ways they're going to be looking more and more like TV uh, and probably looking more and more like uh, TikTok. And in order to, to, com to compete on, on certainly on TikTok, like as Shashira mentioned, you have to have an incredibly uh, good recommendation system, which is what, what TikTok and ByteDance has. Um, and just last quick question. If people listen to this, but didn't buy the book yet, why should they buy the book? There's so much juicy detail in here. Oh, some yeah, things we they're going to learn covered... that, they, that we didn't talk about. 
So, uh, I mean, God, we barely covered so much ground. Uh, we didn't even we didn't even talk about the like the biggest and most fascinating creators. And I think some of the you know I, I was like really interested in a lot of the trailblazers that were coming on this platform when there was like no guarantee of financial success. Uh, and then you have people that became like stars overnight in their early twenties. Uh, and made a lot of stupid mistakes that that put the, the company in a lot of terrible situations. And I think it makes for a really good, compelling, uh, dramatic reading. So, thank you. My answer. I mean, I, I think I, I I'll give I give one. I mean, I think one of the reasons I like the YouTube story and I like how Mark told it in the book is, I mean, people read these books for lots of different reasons. I mean, people like the the entrepreneurial story, the hero story. Like YouTube really started as a dating site. Like, how does that work? How do you? How what what is the I think people like an inside look at a product they use um, and what is it, what is it, what are the incentives and what caused it. But the other reason I think the YouTube story is so interesting, and we didn't really talk about, like you said, the MCNs, the biggest creators and so on, is a shift in ecosystems happens very rarely. And that, like YouTube represented a massive shift. I mean, you, we use this analogy all the time, the online video did to cable, cable did to broadcast. And the, the implications of that shift are still being felt and so I, and they can be replicated in other industries so i i think that's uh if i were reading the book i think it's all different all the different reasons to read it but um that's one that i think may not be obvious to people if you want to know how an ecosystem get, can get created and it wasn't overnight um but i think it's well covered in the book Amazing. Couldn't ask for a better endorsement. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Thank you, uh, Shashir Marotra, for joining us. And to Mark Bergen, congratulations. Please, please um, buy the book at your local bookstore or wherever you get your books. Take care. Thanks so much, Have Emily. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Mark. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.